up, home slices of Teed Up Queens. It's your girl, Phoebe's here. I don't know if you know, but for a while now, I've been podcasting outside of Teed Up Queens. That's right. I have another podcast called So Many White Guys. It's very near and dear to my heart and Vagine. I host it. I interview people. And my girl, Alana Glazer, is the executive producer. Hey, y'all. Just saying hi. <laughs> just here to party. <laughs> Uh, the show is also close to my um, vagina, too. Oh, yeah. My clit. My clit. It's cool. <laughs> That's right. And uh, Lana and I have made two whole seasons of the show. That's right, two. And right now, we're hard at work on season three. So we want to take a little time and give you a little teeny tiny taste of the show. All right, so here's the idea. Each week, Phoebe goes deep with some of our favorite pop culture icons. She's talking to people of color. She's talking to women. She's talking to LGBTQ plus peeps. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like Issa Rae, Ooh. Margaret Cho, yeah. St. Vincent. Yes. Impressed? Because I fucking am. Me too. Each week, I sit down with people who are just simply crushing it, okay? But there's a catch. I only talk to one straight, cis, white dude a season. Because there are so many white guys being interviewed on podcasts. You get it? You know what I mean? But here, there can only be one. So he's got to be a special one. And it's rare, okay? But occasionally, we find the funniest, warmest, perfect damn dude. So with that in mind, we want to share with you an interview we did last season. A conversation I had with America's dad, you guys. The whitest man in America. No, it's not Barry Manilow. It's not Ronald McDonald. No, it's Tom motherfucking Hicks! So hold on to your cardigans and your kale Caesars because this interview is about to blow your freaking mind. I legit was like, I love kale Caesars. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing my show. So many white guys. Yeah, you sure. are the quintessential white guy. I am the qu- I am that. Yeah. Yes, you are. You are correct there. <laughs> I'm about as white, white as I get. I'm I'm that white guy that when you say, um, hey, uh, w- what do you have on your playlist? I say, whoa. Well, let me tell you, Phoebe. Oh, I've got I've got a big variety of artists on my playlist. I've got um, how about a little John Coltrane? Ooh. Are you impressed with that? Yes, not bad. How about a little uh, uh, b- b- Funkadelic? That's not bad. That's good. Do you have some Tom Petty, some Neil Diamond? Tell me uh, the truth. I have all the I have all the quintessential white guys on yeah. there as well. <laughs> what made you say yes to doing this show? Do you even know what this show is? I have no idea. <laughs> I actually the, the the name of the podcast made me laugh so much that I said, Yeah, I'll do that. Oh, I'll do a podcast my. name 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 that. I'm game. <laughs> I'm so happy you're doing this. And like the thing I told one of my friends who's black and one of the things that I love about black people is like they get so excited. So when I was like, I'm really nervous to say anything because I don't want to jinx it. I very I believe very much in jinxing. But I was like, I'm going to interview Tom Hanks. And she was like, what? You're going to talk to Sully? <laughs> like, it's so it's <laughs> so <laughs> funny. Oh. Like black, oh. <laughs> black people will literally refer to 
white people as like the last thing they saw them in. So you're just like Sully to her. She's like, you're talking to Sully. That's cool. Oh, this is music to my ears because, you know, usually the way the show business cottage industry works is they only talk about the hits that you had 15 years ago. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, uh, you know, you could have a brand new record out. You yeah. know, you could be you could be the Beatles. You could have a brand new record out. And it's a fabulous record. And you're really proud of it. And you want to say, and they all just come back to when you recorded Please Please Me in 1961. Do you, do you know you had a hit? So I, I I love that. Yeah, that's amazing. I'll take that. Um, so I did I did a bunch of research for this. This was like all right. This is the huge huge one. So I got some hard hitting questions coming your way. Hit them. So let's just start it out. Them on. Okay. So my fir- my first question is, how does it feel to have only ever played white men? No, I know it's a burden. <laughs> uh, I, I keep trying to keep trying to break out. I keep trying to come off with. Uh, well, you know, some some aspect of uh, more heredity to it. <laughs> All the guys that played are very white, but occasionally I assemble those chromosome tests for them, you know, the DNA tests. Mm-hmm. And I played characters with like 35% of Spanish Moor DNA, you mm-hmm. know, maybe came to Spain through Algeria. I play, uh, I play guys and they have 17% Brazilian blood inside them. If anybody asked me, you know, what are you? What are you? I say, oh, I'm I'm half Portuguese. A swarthy. Wait, are you really? I am half Portuguese, so, and that that is officially, I believe. Wow. If you go to Portugal, there's a substantial amount of Portuguese people that are are swarthy, and uh, you know, brown skin, particularly at the end of summer. So I know that uh, I know that I play a I do play a lot of white guys, but there's I'm literally I'm a multi-hued. Multi-hued blood, and it's not all red. Some of it's brown. When did you find out that you're Portuguese? One day my mom sat me down when I was old enough to understand and said, son, I need you to know something. You never met them, but your grandparents are both from the old country. I don't know if she was the first generation. She might have been the second generation, but um, she grew up in the California Valley, the agricultural valley. Mm -hmm. And I've been told that back in the day, a long time ago, the, the Portuguese were sort of like the migrant farmers, and we uh, wore it like a badge for a while until uh, uh, we realized that no one, no one really had a concept of what it was like to be Portuguese, but uh, I'm half, wow, half Portuguese. Wow, that's incredible. So do you want to rethink this concept of me being <laughs> the only white guy on your podcast Yeah, now? we should just you might have end to- it. Yeah, I'm gonna end this interview, but it was great chatting. You, it was out. You might have to go off and get you and McGregor now to come on and talk to you or somebody like that. I'm glad you brought this whole like issue of ethnicity and your 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 background because a friend of mine who has this podcast called Another Round, her name is Tracy Clayton. She assembled like pictures of like you, like Thurgood Marshall and Cab Calloway and like other like light-skinned black dudes from back mm-hmm. in the day. She has this thing called Tom Hanks is a black man because she's like, if you compare the pictures, you do kind of look yeah, like you could yeah. pass as like a light-skinned black dude. That's wild. Highest praise imaginable. I'm going to tell my crack staff here at the office to start developing those light-skinned black man stories. <laughs> Um, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know when I mm-hmm. I'll tell. Let me tell you a story that when I first moved to New York mm-hmm. uh, in like 1977, 
my hair was really dark, and it was the, I went there at the end of the summer, and so uh, you know I had I had my summer tan, and I I picked up something from a store, and the black guy at the cash register mm-hmm. told me how much I think I was buying a carton of milk for two dollars, and he looked at me and he said two dollars dose he said dose. He said it to me in Spanish, yeah. like I was Puerto Rican or Cuban. Yeah. I felt like a million bucks. I thought, oh, man, I'm in New York, and I'm already passing as one of the members of the Sharks from West Side Story. <laughs> this is fabulous. <laughs> Dose, he said to me. And then I, when I handed, handed it over, I, I, I might have said, gracias, por favor, something like that. I might have spoke back to him in what high school Spanish I had. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, well, it's that thick, curly hair. Yeah, it is the curly hair that can make that could throw a lot of people off. They're not sure you could fit in with a lot of a lot of groups. So we want to talk about white men for a second. So there is one currently in the White House, and you recently sent the White House press corps uh, an espresso machine. Like, what made you want to do that for them? Uh, it's a it's a longstanding uh, joke. Back when. Um <laughs> white guys like me got invited to the White House just to come, you know, and visit. I was mm-hmm. on a tour of it with my kids. And you go down to the press room, and I went back and I saw their coffee area. And it was this sad little old, like, Mr. Coffee, you know, drip percolator kind of thing. And I said, is this the only coffee you have here? This is well, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, I'm going to send you a decent coffee machine. So back in the 90s, I sent them a decent coffee machine. And, uh, about eight years, 10 years later, we were back and we did the same thing. I said, oh, you know what? I'll pony up. I'll give you another decent coffee machine. So we did. And then uh, a million years later, just now in 2017, here at the office, I said, hey, you know, it's probably time to re-up for the White House. Go ahead. Let's order another one. Send it along and I'll include my note. And the difference between this coffee machine and those previous coffee machines is two words. Social media. Those, mm. those, I gave those mm-hmm. coffee machines before Instagram and uh, email and Twitter and what have you. So I got a lot of credit just for uh, you know, making sure that the White House press corps still had a decent, decent source of the legal addictive stimulant. That is coffee. So you've been to the White House a few times. What's your favorite memory from that, that, those experiences? Well, the first time is mm-hmm. always, um, I mean, you hear music when you go there for the first time, you know, mm-hmm. but I will tell you the most memorable time was we were in Washington, D.C., and it was for the, uh, oh, it was for the, actually the dedication of the World War II Memorial, which, um, you know, I helped raise money for. And there was a, there was a big event uh, out on the mall, and this was when George W. Bush was president. Mm-hmm. And we asked for a tour of the White House because my two younger boys were with me. And we went there. And the place, it was a Saturday or a Sunday. It was the weekend. And so nothing was happening in the White House. It was empty. And my wife, she had to to use the restroom. So she went off to the restroom. And we were relatively quickly shunted into this side room because the president himself was going to be coming by on his way to the gym. And I think the, the thing was, is like, it's not, he's not working that day, so he's not glad-handing anybody, he's not meeting anybody. So we just went into a side room and waited for, I guess, him to pass. And as I'm in there, I hear my wife say, 
in the hallway, well, hello, Mr. President. <laughs> and I heard George W. Bush says, well, hi, who are you? <laughs> and, and, my wife, and my wife said, well, I'm, I'm Rita Hanks, Tom's wife. You know, she only she only busts that out. She busts out the Hanks version of her last name, <laughs> you know, when when convenient. And he said, well, of course, how are you? And so they started talking. She says, you know, Tom and our boys are here. He says, well, where are they? So we get ushered back out into the main main lobby with the president. And there he is. And he's wearing his gym clothes. And he took us outside to the Rose Garden. He was going to show us um, the Oval Office and the... Uh, and the cabinet room. Wow! But then we're walking towards this is this is a highlight. Then we're walking towards the uh, the rose garden to go into the Oval Office, which we saw, and we saw the cabinet room. We had a little bit more chat. It was really great. But I swear to God, there was a dead blackbird mm-hmm. laying in the grass, and we said, "Oh my gosh, look at that!" And he said, "Ah, ah, that's a shame." And he picks up the bird with his with his bare hands. And he says, yeah, we get these all the time in a ranch. And he threw the blackbird into, into the bushes. What? Yeah, he, he flew the blackbird into the bushes <laughs> to get out of sight. He says, you know, ah, the crew will pick that up. The, the crew will get that. But just the way he said, ah, oh, that's a shame. We get this all the time down at the ranch. And he threw this bird in the bushes. Somebody, somebody picked it up. I got to tell you, the Hanks family has been dining out on, on that story for about for about a thousand years now. I mean, for, well, since he was in the, since that day. Yeah. There you go. How's that? That's legendary. I was not expecting that. It has so many twists and turns. That's great. Now, in this story, you mentioned Rita, Rita Wilson, of course, and you guys have been married something like 25 years. 29 years on April 30th. 29 years, which is amazing. And yeah. my brother has been with his wife almost 20 years, and my parents have been together almost 40 years. And so I see all these long-term relationships, and I want to get married one day and stay married forever. So, like, how do you and Rita do it? Because you're both busy. You both have (laughs) thriving careers. You have a bunch of kids. Like, do you have date nights? Do you do massages? Like, what is the Tom (laughs) Hanks secret? Oh, wow. All right. Man, I wish we had something that was as easy to define as that. I will tell you this, um, you know, we didn't get married young. Uh, we got married, uh, we didn't get married till we were both 30. You know, we graduated from high school in the same year. Mm-hmm. So we didn't get married on the fly. We didn't get married, you know, in a fever. We weren't like so enamored with each other that we had some uh, goofy version of what love or, or togetherness is. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that right from the get-go, I thought that uh, that there was something crazy great about her. You want to call it, you know, at first sight? I'll say there was there was without a doubt. I met her and I thought, oh, oh Lord, oh, I just crossed some brand of Rubicon here. There's a there's something cooking here. Now it takes a long time in order to in order to uh, get around to the uh, the rest of what goes on in, in a relationship. But mm-hmm. uh, we knew each other for, oh, I guess we met in 84 and we got married in, in 88. So um, we got together at the first moment that uh, that we could. I had two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she had none. Uh, she comes from a big Greek family. I got to know uh, all of those people. Look, we learned the secret of happiness with each other a long time ago, and that's always telling the truth. And she makes me laugh harder now than she did 
1986. So uh, there's no secret. You just got to meet the right person. And uh, and uh, when the time comes, when you go all in, you go all in. That's amazing. I mean, you're lucky. I mean, what, you married, your parents have been married 40 years? Yeah, my dad was 16 when he met my mom, who was 20. Holy smoke. First of all, shame on your mom. What was she? <laughs> what was that about? I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> they both worked at a, a fast food restaurant, and my dad was very smitten with my mom. And my mom was like, you're 16. Like, what? Like, you? what? I'm not interested in you. And my wow. dad kept pursuing her. And, like, the first date he asked her out on, I think it was, like, to the movies. She didn't think it was a date. Like, my mom was just very kind of adorably clueless about it. And then, like, Fabulous. it was— It always helps. Always helps to be adorably clueless. Yeah. I've, I've, turned, it, I've turned it into a lucrative <laughs> career. But, yes, go on. And, you know, eventually— he he stuck and they I remember Man. shortly before my mom's dad passed away, he he had a talk with my dad and he gave his blessing. He was like, you're the best person for her. I want you to marry her. And, you know, I think my dad proposed the first time and my mom said no, I think because like we're too no. young. Yeah, she was like, wow. we're too young. Cold. We wow. Shouldn't. wow. Yeah. And my dad was wow. like not giving up. He was like, you're the love of my life. And I think he proposed a second time and she said yes and then got married at City Hall. Okay. Now I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think this story could definitely be a movie because the idea of a 20-year-old woman marrying a 16-year-old guy, that, that's the, it, 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 let's imagine this is a movie, okay? Okay. Was your dad by any chance a light-skinned black man? Yes. <laughs> well, then I could play your dad. I could, what's his name? What's your dad's name? My dad's name is Philip. <laughs> Philip. Tom Hanks. It is most... It is most diverse role to date. I, <laughs> I'm playing Philip. Bring it on. I'll bring insight into that drive. We can shoot it motion capture with a lot of CGI so I can play him as a 16-year-old boy, hell-bent. What's your mom's name? My mom's name is Octavia. Oh, holy cow, Octavia. Gorgeous. Yeah, so they've been married ever since, and it's great. So I'm just... Always, I'm just so fascinated by couples that can make it la like my longest relationship is like four and a half years, and that was like oh, that's boy. all right. Yeah. Well, but after four and a half years, you know, you you know if you're in it for the long haul or yeah. if he's in it for the long haul, and yeah. sometimes you got to go through that because guess what? The answer is no. Then you don't marry that person, and you still got it. You, you'll have a shot at that other thing you want, which is being married forever. My my parents. Both of them pioneered the marriage dissolution laws for the state of California. My mom was married four times until she found the great, great love of her life. Wow. My dad was married. My dad was married three times before he found the great, great love of, of his life. My parents split up when I was <laughs> the first time when I was five. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like either one of them, <clears throat> one of them was getting a divorce, I think, about every three and a half years of my youth. What I did not have was mm -hmm. the version of what you had. Uh, with Phil and Octavia, or that my wife had uh, with uh, with her folks. Her, mm -hmm. her folks made it well past fifty. That to me, that's the outlier there. I don't know how I don't know how people do that. Yeah, that's and yet they do. Yeah, it's amazing. I want to switch gears and talk about your career for a little bit, if that's okay with you. Yeah. 
So I love the actors to actors conversation that you had with Viola Davis on Variety. Yeah. Yeah. It was so great. And you two were talking about acting and you mentioned that as an actor, like you deal with imposter syndrome, which to me is shocking because I've grown up with your work. You're so incredibly talented at what you do. I rewatched Castaway the other night and was like sobbing in my apartment to myself. Do you still feel that way now? Like today, you still feel there's a little part of you that's like, I don't know. Someone's going to find out I'm a phony. I'm not that great at what I do. Yeah, I, it goes, I think it just goes along with the, the territory. I, the, look, I'm confident in, in many, many aspects of, of the profession mm-hmm. that I have chosen for myself. I, I, I now am not nearly as intimidated uh, in regards to preparing for something mm-hmm. or preparing for a role. Um, or, or even judging whether or not it, it's something that I want to do or not. If I if I read something and I'm not going to do it, I don't I don't never look back and think, ah, oh, geez, I should have done that job because somebody else went off and made it a great movie and I could have. I I never think that way because it either it has to land in your instinctive wheelhouse right off the bat. Otherwise, you're going to be you're going to be faking it. You're going to be pretending to know what you're doing as opposed to actively pr- pursuing the role itself. Now, that's different uh, than actually <laughs> on the day when you have to show up and you have to make some uh, emotional truth actually occur mm-hmm. in a very specific time and place on a very specific day. All these things that come from any movie uh, that any, anybody has did, but you know, speaking for myself, I could sit down with you and we could watch Castaway together and you could pause it at a scene and say, okay, so what about this scene? And, and I could talk to you about all the fears, all the worries, all the options that uh, we either weighed actually there on the set when we were trying to figure out how we were going to shoot it or inside my own head that led up to what that moment was. Mm-hmm. There's this thing that, that happens in films where um, a powerful beat in the story is going to be committed to film, all right? It's like Thursday and this is the this is the day that you are going to say good for, for the sake of Castaway. Say goodbye to Wilson. All right. Um, I never thought about it. I just knew. Oh, tomorrow we're going to shoot the scene where I say goodbye to Wilson, mm-hmm. where he floats away. Never thought about it. Didn't fret. Slept fine. Got up. The moment came. Went down. Went to the place that it was required, and out it came. That is a different professional artistic experience than, say, another part of that movie where I have to wake up on a beach and wonder what's going on. Mm-hmm. Those, that stuff drove me nuts because you're, you don't have an immediate emotional river to jump into like the scene where you say goodbye to Wilson. Yeah. That's just cold water. You jump in the river, takes you downstream, and you're done. The building blocks of what that movie was uh, often required just kind of like tough brand of work in which uh, in which you test it and you try it. And you talk about other different things. And you, uh, Bob Zemeckis and I, who have a fabulous working re- uh, relationship, I, you know, we'd find each other in the course of making a movie like Castaway or the other ones that we've done. And I'd say, Bob, is anybody going to give a shit about this scene? And Bob would say, uh, nah, you never know. 
<laughs> it's a minefield. It's a minefield. I said, Bob, it's like we're sowing the seeds of our own destruction by even trying to do it. Yeah, isn't it great? That's what movies are. So um, if the question is, is like, do I feel confident? I, I, feel, a, I feel confident in approaching the jobs. Mm-hmm. But the jobs themselves end up, whether or not they land, whether or not you're actually capturing the moment that is going to uh, speak to the audience or not, man, that's just a whole other different country that you can't explore. Uh, you can't do it unless you have some degree of confidence, but you also cannot do it if that confidence then is uh, encumbered with hubris that mm-hmm. says, oh, I know how to do this. fact is we don't know how to do it. We just have to prepare and then do it, and we, we, either, uh, we either do it accurately and authentically or not. I, you know, I know a, a handful of actors, and a lot of them are method, and you can just see the toll that their work takes on them spiritually and emotionally. And you seem, you know, very warm and mentally sound and light and joyful. And so I'm wondering, like, you've been acting for such a long time. How have you been able to do this job and sort of protect yourself where you don't, (laughs) you know, in a way that you don't come away like damaged, you know? Well, the concept of the method actor actually is something I think that we all do at some point, just mm-hmm. not to the most stereotypical version of it. There are moments where we all become our characters. Now, I don't know how to come on. I couldn't walk around on a movie like Sully and say, please call me Sully. <laughs> and have Sully, would you step into the makeup trailer so we can paint your mustache again? Yes, thank you. You, you can't do that. It's like we all know what we're doing here. We, yeah. <laughs> we sleep in hotel rooms in Atlanta. We go to work that day. And there are moments where you have to transcend the the falsehood and the silliness of making movies and and go there. I mean, there's that's the best way to describe it, I think, is the moment you come and you just go there. But uh, look, I will say, look, this is going to sound really, you know, golly gee willikers. Mm-hmm. But when I discovered that they did plays in high school and I thought, I mean, you can do that. <laughs> you can get up and, and, and take a class and, and get credit for an extracurricular activity for Getting up and doing plays, doing shows, well, that's way better than the track team. (laughs) I've got no interest in being on the yearbook staff or the electronics club. I'll do that. And the the excitement of doing it and the hang that goes along with it and the camaraderie as as well as the... uh, the sheer physical excitement and possibilities of being cast in a show is no different then than, than it is right now. I, you know, some people go in it because it's a, a version of therapy, which it is for me, certainly. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to explore some aspect of the human condition. That That's it for me. Some of it is just because, you know, just so enthralled at the idea of standing up and being part of a Shakespeare or a, a great musical production. It's fun. Look, b- being an actor is... Is crazy fun, and it has always been uh, fun for me. You know, I've had my moments at three o'clock in the morning somewhere, uh, thinking, "What the hell's happening to me?" And uh, is this getting out of hand? But uh, I'm look, I'm sixty years old now. I've been I've been a professional actor, and by that I mean I've had a union card in my pocket since I was twenty years old. Wow. So the the I've been able to make my peace with all the business aspects of it, the mm-hmm. highs and lows would go along with that. And also the very personal uh, search for purpose that any actor feels when they're young. And there was a a time when I thought I was doing really great and was not. 
There was other times where I thought that I, I, I had absolutely nothing, and but uh, had been stripped enough of uh, uh, emotionally and kind of uh, uh, self-consciously uh, in order to get to a place that uh, I didn't. I was surprised that I was able to uh, to get to. So look, it's all very much a checkered thing, but you know, chutzpah and confidence is not nearly as important as I think maybe the opposite of that is, which is a purposeful distancing of yourself from yourself. Mm. Being an actor requires a lack of self-consciousness that still requires a degree of self-conscious training, a voice, a character, a look, an idea. You have to get away from that. So, uh, I, look, that's just, and that's just as learned over time, but it's a lesson that you start learning from the very first time you get up on stage. You never cease learning it. That's awesome. I love that. So, you know, the world knows you as this highly accomplished and extremely talented actor, but you have a short story collection coming out this fall called Uncommon Type. That's, is this your first collection of stories that you've written? Uh, oh, yeah. It's a, yeah. Oh, by all means. Yeah. Uh, I've done writing in a bunch of different circumstances on, on many series, a uh, few things. And, uh, you know, you write uh, oratory. And I've written a number of screenplays and I've written on screenplays and on, on things. But I've never sat down and written bona fide prose, mm-hmm. prose stories. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I uh, got full of myself and had this idea that, that I uh, fleshed out. And through a bunch of very circuitous routes and some very, very nice people that kept passing it along to somebody else, it got printed in the New Yorker. And from that, I got uh, an invitation from uh, Random House and Penguin to say, you, you, you got any more of these? And I said, well, you know, I sort of do. And so I, I foolishly said, yeah, and, you know, took on another full-time job. And two years later, uh, um, I, I had enough of them. So, yeah, the, the, the collection will be out in next uh, September, October. And so each story involves a typewriter. Um, what is uh, why? <laughs> Most, mostly a cheesy device that gives me a reason to... <laughs> You, you figure out how the typewriter is going to appear in the story first, and then you go on from there. Some of them are just about, there's a reference to a typewriter on a shelf. It's, it's not about typewriters per se. Uh, it's about stories in which typewriters appear, and sometimes it's nothing more than a, a sound coming from another room or something that somebody buys or sees somewhere. It's not about typewriters. It's about, the, about how the typewriter, how, about the people that interact with all of this stuff. And uh, the typewriter is just this odd kind of... Uh, odd kind of hook. I like that. A little little Easter egg to find inside each one of the stories. So I want to ask for some advice from you because I look up to you. You seem to be very on point and you're hilarious and all these things. And so one of my goals in life is to be the black female Tom Hanks. So what do I got to do? I, I hereby dub you the black female Tom Hanks. There <laughs> you go. You so are now are you you officially are now. <laughs> Yours is but to ask. <laughs> no, but like take us through your day. Are you like going for a jog in the morning? Like what are you doing when you're not working in film or or writing? Like what what's going on in T. Oh. Hanks's world? Can I call okay, you T. Hanks? Right. Is that okay to call you yeah, T. Hanks? Yeah, sure. Listen, this this is where you're going to lose listeners because there's <laughs> there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing glamorous about this at all. 
Uh, okay, so Phoebes. Yes. I'm 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found out about eight years ago that I successfully achieved the status of being a type two diabetic. Oh no. Part of it is because of my genes and part of it is because the horrible lifestyle that I led of eating uh, anything. So now the first thing that I do is I take care, I try to take care of that. Mm -hmm. I try to get every single day, one hour of activity. And that could be anything from a treadmill or a walk or a hike with a dog, but it has to be one hour every single day. Mm-hmm. I watch what I eat to a point of boredom, and every now and again I cheat to the point of self-loathing. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after that, have some coffee, read the paper, get up, uh, get the workout out of the way, take a shower. Then after that, it's like come down to the office, see what goes on. Oh, do I got to go to the dentist? Yes, I do. Oh, wait a minute. One of the grandkids has grandparents' day. Off we go to that. Who are we having dinner with tonight? Nobody? Oh, no, let's go see that. And then, then by that time, it's, is it uh, 8.30? Is it too late to start something on Netflix? I think it's too late. Do you think <laughs> should we start something on Netflix? Because we're going to binge whatever it is. Such is my life. I will tell you this. I'll t- I'll t- this is a story that I've told to nobody, but I'll, I'll tell you, Phoebe, because Ooh. you and your dozens of, of listeners. <laughs> Actually, this is going to be an interesting test okay. of how wide a net your, your podcast throws. Okay? <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm at a thing, uh, like a backstage thing, a show business thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I've met him on occasion, but I don't really know him. But I meet, more or less, for the second or third time, Jerry Seinfeld. Cool. It is cool. He said to me, uh, oh, so what, what are you up to now? Uh, and I said, actually, um, I, just, I just finished a job, and uh, I'm going to take, take a year off. I had been working a lot for about six years. So I'm, I'm going to purposely you know, stay off the clock here for a while. And he says, really? A year off? How does that work? Because he's like a comedian, right? Mm -hmm. So his whole thing is dates and clubs and, you know, shows. The idea of taking a year off would be anathema to a guy whose job it is to stay fresh and always be working on his material. I said, well, you know, I'm just, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm fatigued. I'm spent. I'm tired. I need to be quiet for a while. I need to rest. So, so you're tired. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm beat. Well, don't you do TM? Now, it's a, Transcendental Meditation. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So he asked this question. If anybody other than a guy like him had said to me, well, don't you try tea? I'm like, if Goldie Hawn had said, babe, you got to try tea? I would have said, honey, listen, you you enjoy your little floral pants and... and, and, and <laughs> Times in the forest, and you you commune, commune with the wood sprites all you want. I don't know anything about it. And so I did it. Um, and two days later, uh, a great guy came to my house, and, uh, and uh, uh, we, uh, for about four mornings in a row, we spent about an hour. Most of it was just me asking, what isn't transcendental meditation? <laughs> the, the end result was, is that, so I actually, I'm kind of glad I did it now. So now that I have answers to that question, what do you do in your spare? <laughs> what, what else do you do? Is so I didn't have anything other than wait for a dental appointment, but now I can say, <laughs> oh, well, you know, actually I, I took up, I took up that classic version of transcendental meditation. So there's your answer. That's what I do. Are you a spiritual person, or yeah, sure, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I, I look. I, I ponder all the great questions. Mm-hmm. 
because my parents divorced and I lived in so many different circumstances so many times, I went to a lot of different churches when I was growing up, and mm-hmm. my wife is Greek Orthodox, as am I now. My kids have been baptized in the same baptismal font that my wife was baptized in. So yeah, we, when, we, when we go to church, I, I sit there and I, I ponder the great philosophical questions. And sometimes, not necessarily seeking answers, but just yeah. pondering them, you know? Absolutely. Okay, well, we got we got to wrap up because I know you're a busy person, but I want to ask you a couple more questions. So this is probably not the most professional thing. Like, Barbara Walters wouldn't do this, but I think this would be very funny. I'm wondering if you could, like, record the new outgoing message on my voicemail for my phone. Yeah, sure. <gasps> Wait, seriously? That was easy. Okay, great. Well, you got me right here. I got a microphone and headphones on, so why not? But is it is it going to be one of those things? Hi, this is Phoebe. I'm not <laughs> home right now, but if you leave a message at the beep with your name, your number, and the time of day you called, I'll get back to you just as soon as I can. Is that it? Is that is that the kind of thing you no, want? You can or do like, whatever you want. You can make it okay, as funny you as you want. You ready? Hello. Hi, this is Tom Hanks. I am a white guy who might have skin dark enough to play her dad, Phil. I hope that's the case. Anyway, that's what Phoebe tells me when she's home. She's not at home right now, so you know what to do when the beep goes off. Beep. Oh How's my that? God, that was perfect. Now, now, but is that is that kind of like a too long a message to leave? Because if they don't get you, they got to sit through that whole thing. Let me get, I'm going to give you one other option because this is going down on the, on the dad anyway, right? Okay. Hey, you ready? Yeah. Okay. Ready? Hey, Hey, Tom Hanks here. Phoebe's not in. Leave a message. I like having the options. That was good. All right. That's great. All right. Do you want me to do one for you? No, no, because (laughs) I, my, I, I don't even accept messages on my phone. Hey guys, it's Tom Hanks. You've heard of me. I won two Oscars. (laughs) Fucking chew on that for a while. I have a hot wife. I go for hikes. I'm incredible. This message that you leave better not be bullshit. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to have to use that because you made reference to my hot wife. I'm not going to get away with that. <laughs> By the way, she is. Uh, she, I mean, come on. Everyone knows Sometimes I got to say, sometimes I look at that lady in the morning looking all tussled and uh, all warm from bed and her sweats and her hair piled up on her, on her head. Smoking hot. Oh, my God, Tom. That is the sweetest thing. That is so sweet. I love that. Thank you so much, Tom. This has really, truly been one of the delights of my life. You're so wonderful, and I I really appreciate you sitting down and and chatting with me. I enjoyed it. It was nice talking to you. My best to your folks. Oh, thank you so much. interview, Phoebe. I honestly caught feelings right there. I fell in love with him. He's so cute. I mean, we're actually friends now. Like, we call each other all the time. I have dinner with him and Rita. We go to church. We, like, Mm. swap Netflix passwords. It's, like, Mm. really cute. I believe that. I'm sure that is what you do. 
But if that's actually something you do, please call me next time. Yeah, you're right. I've been like, I've been kind of like bogarting the Hanks a little bit. I'm going to share. So sorry about that. (laughs) All right, y'all. That's it. That's a little taste of our sexy ass show. And there's so much more where that came from. Season three of So Many White Guys is coming at you February 27th. And we don't want you to miss any of it. So subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. And in the meantime, go back and binge season one, season two. There are incredible interviews. I interview Alana. I interview Abby Jacobson. I interview Bassem Youssef. I interview Barack Obama. You know, that's not true. But everyone else that I mentioned, a thousand percent true. So go back and listen. You're going to have so much fun. See you on February 27th. Bye, Q. Bye. I believed Barack Obama. I was like, because <gasps> you could. You'd kill it. You think so? Yes. I'm worried that I'd be too intimidated by the Obamas, you know, because they are so accomplished. But it's like you're not approaching that as equals. You know what I mean? You're approaching that as like, oh, my God, the world needs to hear from you. How do right. I best, you know, you and Tom Hanks, equals, you know. Yeah. But <laughs> the Obamas, I'm like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> It's Tom okay Hanks, to. two Oscars, me, no Oscars, but definitely <laughs> Me, <equals>. no Oscars. <laughs> me, no Oscars. <laughs>